Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 3rd of April, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us Northern Exposure from north of the border, and Mark Anderson speaking from the United States. OK, we're going to get uh, straight on with this BBC article. So uh, this is entitled uh, Manchester Arena Survivors Take, quotes, Disaster Troll to Court. Uh, this is by Mariana Spring. Uh, and she's saying that uh, Manchester Arena bomb survivors have, survivors have fi uh, filed landmark legal action against a conspiracy theorist who claims the attack was faked. Uh, Martin and Eve Hibbert, who were left with severe d disabilities after the 2017 blast, are suing Richard D. Hall for defamation and harassment. And then she goes on to talk about uh, the similarities with the Alex Jones case. Uh, the case uh, echoes the action against US conspiracist Alex Jones, who was ordered to pay nearly $1.5 billion by a US court to families of the US Sandy Hook school shooting after falsely claiming the 2012 attack was a hoax. Uh, and uh, so the uh, lawyer uh, for Martin uh, Hibbert is saying that Martin can be seen as a pioneering trailblazer for others to follow if they feel so minded. Um, so, uh, David, I'm interested to see what you think about this, but uh, it looks like the, the attack is on in a very formal way here. Yes. Now, I've not followed uh, Richard D. Hall's coverage of this story so I can't I can't speak as to the details of it. I have seen previous things which she has done, which have always seemed to be to be well researched and quite brave. Um, so it is it is very concerning to uh, to see the courts being used uh, in this uh, Americanized way to um, go after uh, alternative media sources. Um, it's um, well, we'll need to follow the case very closely. I, I, I think it's, it's, it remains to be seen whether there's anything here that actually justifies this action. And it's, um, it's concerning that the courts are being increasingly used to silence people with the wrong opinions. Whether they are actually factually correct or wrong, if they're sincerely held, we should be very cautious about using the courts to say, you cannot say that, you cannot think that, you cannot believe it. Um, so he's being uh, he's yeah. being sued for defamation and harassment, uh, and this is quite similar to the uh, attack on uh, Alex Belfield, of course. Yeah, I, I was just going to add that somebody in our chat box has correctly asked the question: Is it the individual, or effectively, is it the BBC that's taking this action? Because, of course, Mariana Spring obviously very pleased with herself because she's now going to generate even more publicity for her work in the BBC. But it's interesting that this has only happened after the BBC got involved and yet there was plenty of opportunity prior to Mariana Spring's effort for, for the individual to get involved, I would have thought. Maybe not. Indeed. Um, OK, let's move on to health news then. And well, here we go. We've got a new chief scientific officer. Here she is uh, as of today. So this was announced, in, at least her appointment was announced in February, but she takes up the role today. So this is Professor Dame Angela McLean, uh, DBEFRS. So she takes up the role of chief scientific advisor today after being appointed by the prime minister in February, as I said. Uh, she was previously chief scientific advisor for the Ministry of Defence. Uh, and uh, she's the first woman to hold this post. So let's just have a look at her 
CV here. So, uh, as I've just said, uh, most recently appointed Chief Scientific Advisor to the Ministry of Defence in September 2019. Uh, she's also held the post of Professor of Mathematical Biology in the Department of Zoology at Oxford University. She's a Fellow of All Souls College and a Director of the Institute for Emerging Infections of Humans. Uh, so her research interests lie in the use of mathematical models uh, to aid our understanding of the evolution and spread of infectious agents. Uh, so she may well be a good friend of Neil Ferguson or from that camp anyway. Uh, she established the math uh, Mathematical Biology at the Biotechnology and Biological Science Research Council's Institute for Animal Health in 1994. And as a result, she was involved in foot and mouth. Uh, and uh, again, links uh, to Neil Ferguson uh, so, uh, member of the Royal Society on Infectious Diseases in Livestock and took part in the uh, so-called inquiry into the uh, slaughtered on suspicion policy. So, uh, well, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it seems like a safe pair of hands for the next pandemic. Brian? Well, this is it. These people appear. Um, they suddenly come into the arena. They suddenly move into a new job. And yet... Here we are as members of the public. We really know little about it, but they they wield immense power when in post. So a lot of questions to be asked, I think. Yes, indeed. Okay, now let's just mention the MHRA. Uh, let's bring this on screen. The MHRA has published uh, its latest updated uh, MHRA fees. Um, so this was uh, from Saturday, the 1st of April, 2023. New fees are being introduced for a range of MHRA services to ensure that the, agents, the agency covers its costs and achieves financial stability in the years ahead. The new fees will enable the MHR to deliver a responsive and efficient regulatory service that protects and improves patient and public health by facilitating access to high quality, safe, effective and innovative medicinal products. Does that impress you? No. No, okay. <laughs> uh, to ensure fair and proportional fees are set for MHRA customers, the, ch charge, uh, sorry, the changes aim to achieve cost recovery in line with HMS, HM Treasury's principles on managing public money uh, key changes come into effect uh, on the 1st of April are a 10% uplift across statutory fees. Uh, this reflects increases in costs since the last substantial MHRA fee review in 2016. A further uplift, uplift for 58 fees for services that are significantly under recovering costs uh, to achieve full cost recovery. Uh, and the introduction of 18 new fees for services that require cost recovery. So in order to just let you see the scale of the list of MHRA fees. If we can just put that one back on screen, uh, we will just very quickly run through. Now, this will pa pass by so fast that you won't be able to read what it actually says, but this is just to give you an impression of the length of this list of fees uh, that the MHRA has. Well, of course, Mike, if you're going to be a global regulator, you need to rake in the money, don't you, to keep yourself in power? Yes, uh, David, that was impressive. That was that was good. Well, you can never have too many fees. Um, you know, if you're the MHRA, you have to you have to keep raking in the cash. Uh, cash is king. Right? Uh, well, it is indeed. So, Mark, uh, let's come on to the United States and health. Uh, and uh, Dr. McCulloch. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, Dr. Peter McCulloch from right here in Texas. Uh, I'm in Austin now to cover the uh, Independent National Convention for UKC here. And I ran across this the other day. Uh, I crossed paths with him a couple years ago in Berrien Springs, Michigan, where he gave a program at a church there. And uh, he is recently, he's been talking to the U.S. Senate, particularly Ron Johnson, the noted senator from Wisconsin that I've talked about on UKC. 
uh, in terms of wanting to define the uh, World Pandemic Instrument or PACT as an actual treaty so the Senate can give its advice and consent, two-thirds majority vote, all that. So Ron Johnson, a very important senator right now. So anyway, Dr. Peter McCullough is saying to him in a panel discussion, pull the COVID vaxes to save lives. I believe this was March 30th. And uh, there, there's the item right there. Uh, very interesting. And I believe there's a video that would probably explain it better than anything. And that's it's a very brief video, but it would get right to the point on that. Dr. McCullough. Just quickly, I, I think it has to be said to the pathway to, to prevent any more harm is all the vaccines need to be pulled off the market and withdrawn. That needs to happen immediately. All the vaccine mandates should be dropped immediately. We need requests for applications and immediate funding for vaccine injury centers of excellence across the United States for screening, detection, uh, diagnosis, prognosis, and management. Uh, we need a massive shift in our healthcare system towards managing now this large number of vaccine injured people. What's at stake here is death. And the deaths that were reported by Mr. Dowd and, and others, the deaths on a more probable than not basis that are occurring in someone who've taken a vaccine are due to the vaccine and the autopsy studies show it. It's alarming to save American lives now. These vaccines need to be pulled off the market. Yeah, very interesting there. What he's saying is the autopsies are showing it. The evidence is there. It's just incredible that that doesn't somehow in some way make the mainstream news, the mass media cartel, as I call it. Uh, that just is a measure of just how much informational control there is. No matter what they think of these jabs, how can that not make the news, right? That's just a, a question that won't go away. He's an extremely credible cardiologist and doctor, Peter McCullough is. And so that, that just shows you the nexus of control, that that is not headlines literally everywhere. And anyway, um, we have another item on tap here. This was shared with me by James Roguski, the uh, Los Angeles-based um, researcher on the WHO, who's keeping an eye, a close eye like I am on the World Pandemic Treaty Development. But this is a, a notable item. I don't have a lot of comment on it, but it's certainly worth mentioning. Westminster Hall debate, 17 April, so that's a couple of weeks away at 4.30 p.m. your time, e-petition 614-335 relating to an international agreement on pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response. Uh, member Nick Fletcher, conservative, and maybe you guys want to elaborate on that. I don't know much about Mr. Fletcher. Uh, well, uh, these Westminster Hall uh, debates usually host maybe half a dozen people, uh, and uh, they talk about it for a little while and, and nothing much comes out of it. So so we're going to be very interested to see what happens this time. I don't doubt this one will, will be quite similar. Yeah, we're, we're, we'll be interested to see what ha happens, Mark's difficult comment beforehand. Um, okay, uh, David, uh, let's move on to trans issues and uh, Posey Parker. Talking uh, last week about Posey Parker's visit to New Zealand, uh, this is a, a, a shot of her having been uh, assaulted as she was trying to speak and uh, women weren't allowed to speak. Well, this has had many effects, um, political and in the press, and uh, it's included people asking the new Prime Minister of New Zealand uh, a very hard question. Uh, they're asking him what a woman is. Let's see how he does. 
Sean. Um, I just wanted to ask you, uh, given comments by Keir Starmer in Britain, how do you and how does this government define a woman? Um, I, to be honest, Sean, that's, that, that question's come slightly out of left field for, for me. Um, the, well, biology, sex, gender, um, people define themselves, people define their own genders. Keir Starmer has said that he believes 99.9% .9 of women do not have penises. And I know it's a strange thing for him to say, but given recent events in New Zealand, I'd ask again, how do you define what a woman is? Well, as I've, I, I think as I've just indicated, I wasn't expecting that question, so it's not something that I've, um, you know, formulated, pre-formulated an answer on. But um, in terms of gender identity, I think people define their gender identity for themselves. Uh, so, David, that uh, journalist's name was uh, Sean Plunkett, and what was very interesting was that subsequent to that uh, question, uh, this is what happened on Twitter. If we could bring it on screen, uh, here he is, account suspended. Uh, so... Uh, not sure why his account was suspended, whether it was directly linked to that uh, questioning or not, uh, or to some tweets that maybe perhaps he had put out uh, following that. But nonetheless, very interesting, uh, bearing in mind many people getting their Twitter accounts back. But my question to you is, how come he couldn't answer that question? Bearing in mind how many other politicians have already been asked that question, I find it a bit bemusing that he was unable to, or he hadn't thought about it previously. I, well... <laughs> It's not the lack of thought that's the issue. It's the lack of an answer. There's no acceptable answer because the actual answer, you know, adult human female, he can't say because the trans lobby, the, the alphabet people lobby would go for him. So he can't say the truth. But, but actually, there isn't any alternative definition. Right? So he's toiling. He's, he's, he's having to kind of make something up. He can't, what was it, pre-formulate. He can't pre-formulate an answer because there is no formulation other than adult human female, that makes any sense. So he's stuck. Indeed. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd just add, but of course, if we've got to this this stage in the world, because it's, it's not just happening in UK, it's happening in other countries, um, how can we possibly expect any other subject to be dealt with properly? Because we're now in the post-truth, post-reason, post-common sense. We're in pretty dangerous times, aren't we? Well, the entire the entire basis of society has been taken up, taken apart, and this was, of course, the agenda, um, and it's been discussed for decades before um, about how they're going to attack it. It's called critical theory. It, it's basically saying we're going to criticise the existing society in an unrelenting manner until it collapses under the weight of the criticism, and it comes from things like postmodernism that doesn't believe there's any truth. It's, there's only power. Right? There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no man, there's no woman, there's just power. You, everything resolves down to power. And these are the ideologies that are pushing this. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty convinced a lot of the politicians who are swayed by it actually don't understand how their thinking has been modified. But modified it has, has most certainly been. Because do you think if you'd asked that man 10 years ago what a woman is, he would have had any trouble? No. No, exactly. No more, so. no more to be said there. Right. Okay, let's go on. 
So uh, we've got here a couple of reports from Mail Online regarding how these issues are being handled or, shall we say, mishandled in our schools. Right? So the first one here is from a gay teacher who, who tried to help uh, LGBT students feel included. Uh, he said only for them to turn on him, turn on me while, while, when I failed to endorse their gender ideology. So um, th this is uh, Harry Winter, not his, not his correct surname. Um, it, it says, in my new role as a teacher, I didn't hide the fact I was gay. Some students began confiding in me because they were suffering homophobic bullying. Some were self-harming because of it. I, I believe that an LGBT club would be a way a way to offer them a safe space to be themselves. The mother of one of the girls who was self-harming agreed. So he set this up, and then what he found is, he said, the, the pupils began telling me about the LGBTQIA politics. They were bombarding me with a mind-boggling array of trans terminology that they'd picked up online. They knew everything about pride, uh, the acronym, the ever-changing flags, the terminology. He said, what was going on? My simple attempt to make gay children feel more included and to stop the bullying had been hijacked as a hotbed for gender anxiety and trans ideology. It, it continues, having spoken to friends and uh, to parents and friends, I don't think the public understands the grip gender ideology has on our school children. I was just as naive two years ago, but having seen the scale of the problem, I feel I have a duty to raise the alarm for the sake of those children who may be making uh, a a grave and permanent mistake. And, and this is, of course, the issue, the, the, the damage that is done by these ideologies to our children is profound and is life-changing and lifelong. Um, we've got uh, another report concerning schools from the mail here. Um, uh, and this, this is not a teacher raising the alarm. This is a, this is a, this is a school actually uh, endorsing the ideology that that, 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 that previous teacher was, was um, uh, raising concerns about. Um, the headline is, Hi, your daughter is now a boy. Just letting you know. Right? So this is a casual phone call that a mother got while in a shopping centre um, and uh, about her daughter. Uh, so they write, Olivia, again, name change to, to protect identities, was a carefree and typical little girl. This changed when she started secondary school. Suddenly life was complicated. She joined many school clubs and societies, including at the instigation of a friend, an LGBT discussion group. In the space of a few months, uh, she announced to her parents a series of updates. She was first a lesbian, then she was non-binary, and finally she was a boy. Um, this was under influence from a male identifying friend. She then began self-harming. By the time she reached 14, Olivia was in the throes of despair, threatening suicide almost daily. Without telling her parents, the school referred the schoolgirl school to NH-funded, NHS-funded child and adolescent mental health services, but did so under a new name, meaning that not even a GP knew what was going on. Um, as the mother continues, we've now been asked to sign a safety plan which says as parents we have to create a safe space for our daughter and we've been told we must not call her any labels which would cause her emotional distress. In summary, we have no rights to protect her daughter. Uh, she also went on to say the school called social services because the daughter went to them and said she didn't feel safe at home because we don't accept her identity and keep saying she's a girl. 
Um, so they've been given a, 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 an agreement to sign. They said if we don't sign this uh, document, the matter will be escalated to child protection. Um, and the mother that has, has also been told that if the daughter attempts self-harm, they must not intervene, but instead call the police. So we're now in a situation where as parents, we have no rights to protect our own daughter. Another mother said the school told her she had no say in her 13-year-old daughter's decision to change gender because that was the child's right. So you see the child rights agenda being rolled out um, to justify more assaults by the state, more removal of parental rights. That's what it's all about, of course. Um, and the children are left unprotected. Now, this next bit of video we've got here um, shows this is a this is someone who's detransitioning and speaking out about her experience. This shows you just the harm that's going to be done to so many of these children by this dangerous ideology, by the exclusion of the parents from protecting them, and by the encouragement of the schools the medical profession and all aspects of the state that seem to have bought into this ideology uncritically. A mentally ill teenager who had been groomed and preyed upon and sexually exploited online to the point of authorities getting involved. I spiraled into a hatred of myself and my body and was told that it was just because I was a boy born in the wrong body and that this would fix me. I was affirmed down a path where I wasn't given any other choice as to what would help me. The very first medical intervention I ever had was a double mastectomy at 16. And then a few months later, I was put on testosterone. I'm now 21, and I will live with the impacts of that so-called care for the rest of my life. In the past four or five months, I have watched as my body has fallen apart in front of me, my joints constantly hurting, my vocal cords aching, watching as parts of me atrophy away before my very eyes. And yet at 16, they looked me in the eyes and they told me this was care. They told me it would save me. Despite the fact I was never suicidal, my parents were baited with the idea of, would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son? Bullied into going along with it. Their biggest crime being trusting those who they thought took an oath to do no harm. It's not about hate detransitioning. It never has been. It's about keeping kids whole. I've I've worked with children, I've seen them explore the world, and I've seen that magic that they have. And doing something like transitioning them takes that away. How can you look me in the eyes and tell me that a child can consent to being changed to an experimental medical industry before they are even old enough to drive or understand the impacts of what that means in the first place? Kids deserve to be kids. They deserve to get to explore the world as a safe and loving place. And uh, I mean, doesn't your heart go out to that young girl who's now, um, I mean, so bravely speaking out, but so many problems have been added to her. Um, you know, mutilation, ho hormone therapies and all the rest of it. 
uh, when she really needed someone to take care of her, someone to talk to her, um, and a bit of love. It's uh, very tragic. Um, one of the other factors we're seeing in this is, is, a, is an increasing violence in, in the trans activist um, uh, extremists, uh, in the people really pushing this, the people who are in demonstrations. And um, one aspect of this uh, has obviously been the, the, the recent shooting at a school in America. And it's pointed out, as you see in this next slide, that this is one of a, a number uh, of mass shootings uh, in the States where uh, the perpetrator was uh, themselves identified as either non-binary or trans. Um, this um, narrative was so effective that Reuters felt the need to fact check it. So they went to a database of mass shooting, which includes all the gangland shootings and all the rest of it, and said, well, um, most of the um, mass shootings are, are violent gun attacks in the US are carried out by cisgender men. So this is um, missing context, is what they said. So they had, they had to respond to cover up people pointing out this uh, series of events. Now, on a lower level of violence, uh, I've come across one campaigner called um, Billboard Chris. So we see him here. So Billboard Chris has spent two years going around Canada and the United States. Um, uh, campaigning and talking and going to like pride events and all the rest of it to put forward his point of view. And you see there he's defining a dad as a human male who, who protects his kids from gender ideology. He has two daughters. Um, and he also wears a sign that says children cannot consent to puberty blockers. Um, now, he's been assaulted many times. Uh, he was assaulted twice in one day in uh, uh, Vancouver in Canada. Um, and and we've got a few stills. I can't actually show the video because it's just uh, it's just expletives being sh being shouted at him constantly. Um, but we've got here a few stills, and you see um, this this first one here, uh, a, a person who looks like a woman. Uh, I think is actually male, from judging by later actions. Uh, and I, and he or she is 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 shouting obscenities at. Um, at uh, Billboard Chris. And you see in the background ringed a smiling police officer. And this is a senior officer in charge of, of policing this demonstration. And she seems quite happy, right? And as you see, as, um, as the LGBT protester uh, uh, grabs Billboard Chris by the throat, uh, later throwing him to the ground, um, the police officer's just smiling, which seems a bit strange. And uh, this final still, uh, so Chris has been basically grabbed by the neck, punched, thrown to the ground, and uh, the, the police officer's grinning from ear to lug. And we have a line-up, all the people in the front line are all women, they're all, none of them are intervening. Um, they, they look a bit um, unsure of what to do. Uh, the only police officer that seems to know what to do is one rank back, uh, and, and, and he's a man. Um, so that, that raises questions about whether having uh, women in the front line of a potentially uh, violent conflict is actually particularly good police uh, decision making. But, but this, this lady who's in charge, who's ringed here, her it looks like glee at this man being assaulted is very worrying indeed. And it, it, it plays to the fact that this, the, the authorities have been so permeated by the same ideology 
that they're not doing things like uphold the law. Um, uh, we have also here from Billboard Chris um, he, he, a tweet where he made a speech at the Florida State Capitol. Now, I, I listened to the speech. It was very uh, moderate. It was very paced. It was it was an impassioned plea to protect children from harm. Um, and it was, it was apparently successful because the committee passed um, a bill to stop childhood sex changes by 15 votes to 6. Um, and that takes us to the Babylon Bee reporting on trans activists storming the capital. And again, this is going to the, the increasing extremism and the, and the increasing use of force and violence. Trans activists stormed the Florida capital today to oppose laws that protect little kids from them rights, not the bee. Um, so they, after, after storming the Kentucky, Kentucky and Tennessee capitals, uh, they've now um, stormed the capital at Florida. About 200 activists um, protested against uh, Bill HB 1069, which is an expansion of the of the so-called Don't Say Gay Bill. The bill passed as activists were chanting and sharing their stories. So um, maybe Mark would like to say something about this because I'm, I'm puzzled by this. I thought storming Capitol buildings was an insurrection and was the worst thing in the world, Mark. Is that no longer the case? Yes, that, that contradiction is staring us in the face, isn't it, David? Uh, this is nevertheless pretty reassuring that they did this in Tallahassee and passed the bill at the committee level. We'll see where that goes. There's been similar things here in Texas. Critics say it's a little ineffectual, a little, a little bit weak, but nevertheless, things, to be, things seem to be pointing the same general direction here in Texas. So that's reassuring too. One thing I would add based on what we've seen so far is those who are in this trans community and take part in these activities, of course, they're, they're bussed around the country. A lot of them aren't even from the communities where they're protesting. They're, they're uh, uh, basically a rent-a-mob oftentimes possibly getting NGO money, possibly through the Soros network. But one of the things they don't understand is the powers that be, when the powers that be are done with them, they'll throw them to the roadside. They'll kick them to the curb. They're just useful idiots so they can completely take away parental rights because that's the real goal that you mentioned earlier, David, and I'm just putting an emphasis on it. Ultimately, it's to, it's to tell parents that your children are not yours. They belong to the state. And child's rights are the way to separate the kids from the parents in loco parentis, which is in the place of the parents. That's what the fundamental, that's the fundamental thing that this is ultimately all about. And I think that that needs to be stressed a lot. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, back, back to you, Mike. Okay, uh, okay, back to the UK then. And uh, <clears throat> well, Capita, the company that everybody loves to hit because they enforce the TV license uh, collection, uh, money collection. Well, they had a bit of an IT problem over the weekend. Now, who is Capita? Well, aside from TV license, of course, they're outsourcing firm that's used by the National Health Service, by local councils, by British government, by the British Army even. Um, so uh, this was pushed out by them on Friday following a technical problem which has affected access to some of our services today that we can confirm that we've identified an IT issue that is primarily impacting our internal systems. Uh, and what did this turn out to be? Well, it turned out to be a cyber attack. Uh, and it looks like, well, was it some kind of ransomware? They're not saying just at the moment. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, they claim that no uh, individual client's data uh, was exposed by this attack. 
but obviously they are, are not, we're not able to provide functionality for many systems, including some council systems involving uh, benefits and so on uh, over the weekend. Um, so I just wanted to mention this because over the weekend, the government uh, published this uh, job advertisement for the head of cybersecurity for HM Treasury. Uh, and the salary that they're putting on this is £50,000 a year, £50,000 to £57,000 a year. Now, for a London-based role, this is a pitifully small amount for what is considered what would be considered an extremely senior uh, position. Um, so let's just bring up what they say about it. The head of cybersecurity uh, identifies, understands and mitigates cyber-related risks. They provide risks to service owners uh, with advice to help them make well-informed risk-based decisions. Now, uh, why is this important? Well, because of course the, the, the government is moving to digital everything. And so cybersecurity becomes a key function of that. And if you're paying somebody based in London 50,000 pounds to be head of cybersecurity for the treasury, uh, which of, co of course uh, is the source of everything in the UK government, uh, then they can't consider cybersecurity to be a very serious uh, issue for them. Um, so I would then question the, the entire digital strategy of uh, the UK government. Now, of course, what they then do is they, they pay civil servants pitiful amounts of money. Uh, and in the meantime, they outsource more and more services to the likes of Capita. Yeah. And Capita have now just demonstrated that they're not capable of saving themselves from cyber attacks. So what could they do for any uh, on any government contract that involves digital identity or uh, digital currency, anything, I, I don't know, anything that they might be involved in in the future. I, I don't think this looks for, this is a very good look for either the government or for capita. Uh, I, I find this fascinating, uh, um, Mike, you know, that that is such a small amount of money. So it's almost like the Treasury's putting somebody in place to make it look as if they are doing something, but actually that person's not going to have any any real power or authority. David? Well, it's not as if we haven't had some experience in the governmental sector of things going horribly, horribly wrong. We had SEPA were hacked and, and ransomware was installed and they couldn't get around it. And basically they had to recreate their, all the data and it took them, well, I don't know if they've even fully recovered yet, but it certainly took them six months to a year to have any semblance of normality uh, in that particular government agency. And for, for, some, for some months, basically they had been effectively stopped from working at all. Um, and uh, so the, the government knows how bad this can be. They've had some experience of how bad it can be. Uh, I'm astonished that they're, they're viewing that as such a kind of minor position. Um, well, uh, somebody in the chat box made the point that uh, cybersecurity is the uh, remit of GCXQ and the National Cybersecurity Centre, and this is probably a local manager role. That is true, of course, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that it, that it is massively under-resourced. Uh, and, uh, you know, security is something that happens at every level. So, you know, if you're going to put somebody in as head of security, at uh, head of cybersecurity at the Treasury, I would have expected to be uh, a more senior position than that salary implies. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, your membership would very much welcome uh, and uh, very much uh, needed and appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK column shop, uh, but please do share material you find on the various platforms, including ukcolumn.org, uh, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk as well.
Um, just uh, another reminder that, in fact, in a couple of weeks, uh, on the 23rd of April, uh, the Alternative View team are hosting, or we're hosting on their behalf, uh, a, a, a virtual event called Smart Cities and Surveillance Agenda. Uh, Pippa King, John Kitson, Mark Anderson, and David Dubine will be speaking at that. Uh, please do attend if you possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right, okay, so um, let's uh, put out another ad here for tomorrow at one o'clock. We'll be streaming an interview I did with Jonathan Tilt in order to find out about Vote Freedom, Vote Freedom Project. And this is part of the UK column um, engaging with people who are trying to make a difference through the political system. And of course, we've got the local elections coming up and that is usually uh, the time at which the smaller parties can make a difference and hopefully get people elected. So um, join us for that uh, stream tomorrow. UKcolumn.org slash live or community.ukcolumn.org slash live, depending on whether you're a member or not. Indeed. Okay, thank you for that. And we've got a London rally coming up here. Yes, just to mention uh, the next uh, rally against the uh, ultra-low emission zone uh, in London. Uh, it's at 12, at 12 to 3 p.m., 15th of uh, April, Saturday, uh, Trafalgar Square, uh, the T Together Project, uh, and hosting that. So uh, get along to that if you can. Okay, that's good. Now, um, this was sent in by a viewer, taking it at face value today, but it's another job advert, and it's engagement activity in Newham, London, to increase COVID-19 vaccinations. The closing date is apparently the 11th of April, 2023 at 12 p.m. And it says NHS South Central and West Commissioning Support Unit, delivery of culturally sensitive local engagement activity co-produced with local partners to promote COVID-19 vaccine update in under vaccinated groups in the Newham Borough of London. It's very interesting seeing this against the backdrop of the uh, American doctor saying we should be withdrawing all of these vaccines. Uh, but of course, here in UK, the agenda is to keep pushing them out and jabbing as many people as possible. So if the person who sent this in to us can keep an eye on it, we'd be happy to take more information. Now, we've also had a couple of emails. This one Again, taken at face value, but it's a report of girls fainting at a local secondary school, Catmose College, Oakham. Um, female teenagers um, fainting at the college, not just one or two, but many. And uh, ambulances have apparently been called so often now that the ambulance service is saying we can't deal with this. And the school, the college itself is going to happen to is going to ha have to deal with things as best they can. And then there's mention of a, a landlord advising me that his daughter had never fainted before, but she does faint in the college. Um, it can't, he doesn't see it as stress as his daughter has had to deal with far more stressful situations. He's asked the college to look into what's going on, but so far they've refused. And then there's an anecdotal story of another person um, uh, who had been a teacher at the college, she stated this was being reported on a large scale in America. So that's the uh, email that's come in. There was a contact number, and I will speak to the p people concerned, but it does appear to be quite interesting. Uh, we've got another one here. This is to do with last Wednesday's UK column Extra. And um, the comment is about the awful BBC Countryfile programme 
which is now hell-bent on helping to destroy our beautiful countryside. That's the opinion of the viewer. Uh, they had a special edition from Cornwall. They were at a water treatment plant, apparently, where contaminated water from the old tin mines was being cleaned up. It was then going through treatment hoops, and uh, they were very proudly showing the audience lithium extraction. Uh, this doesn't surprise me at all, because the last big tin mine, Crofty in Cornwall, it was uh, well known that the water had a sufficiently high a percentage of lithium to enable extraction. But I get the uh, comment of the viewer that the BBC is normally protecting the planet in every possible way, but not when it comes to the possible extraction of lithium for more electric vehicle batteries. Um, it went on, it says, uh, to me, the whole lithium extraction thing looked exactly like the fracking scenario and we know how historically this is terribly bad for local areas. And then Peter went on to thank us for what we're doing. So uh, thank you very much for sending that in. And it's good to see UK Column audience engaging and uh, watching what's going on around them. David. Hi, David. Uh, just a quick comment, Brian. Uh, you may remember some years ago there was a proposal to add lithium to everyone's drinking water in order to prevent suicides as it uh, modifies mood. Uh, well, no, no, no discussion of that in the BBC, though, I guess. Some no. pharmaceutical products are being administered with that objective of, of that type of pharmaceutical product is being administered with that objective in mind, causing severe distress to the recipients. Uh, but that's about as much as I can say on that one at the moment. Uh, Mark, uh, war. Yes, uh, this is a sampling of the slides I'm using this coming Thursday, April 6th at a large local restaurant, uh, which is being live streamed. And I'm speaking on the mass media cartel. And I'll give some contact info if I can here in a moment on that, on how to uh, get a pay-per-view on that through a live stream. Anyway, this is a noted cartoon. It's fairly well known. It shows Joseph Pulitzer on the right, known for the Pulitzer Prize, and William Randolph Hearst, or Pulitzer on the left and William, Rand William Randolph Hearst, excuse me, on the right. And uh, this concerns the Spanish-American War in the late 1800s. And they were noted, both of these big names in journalism, for yellow journalism to constantly put the United States on a war path and to go to war with Spain. They, of course, pushed the what many people believe to be a myth that in Havana Harbor that the U.S. battleship Maine was actually blown up by a Spanish mine. Many people took issue with that and felt that they had disproved that, that Spain was not responsible. But facts never meant anything to Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst for their yellow, yellow journalism if there were papers to sell. That's, so that's just one of many items I'll be showing this Thursday. We have another one. And actually, it goes back in this next slide. It goes all the way back at least until the Civil War uh, in terms of media manipulation and uh, lurching toward war rather than peace and understanding. Horace Greeley, the editor of the New York Tribune, I'll read a little bit here. Greeley's status as the editor of the New York Tribune, which he founded in 1841, that's some 20 years before the Civil War, gave him national influence that even President Lincoln could not afford to ignore. As biographer Robert C. Williams noted, quote, as editor of the influential and widely read New York Tribune in the decades before the Civil War, Greeley's words helped to emphasis 
add fuel to the fires of slavery and sectionalism that divided North and South. End of emphasis. His newspaper, his newspaper had a larger circulation than any other newspaper in the world by 1860, right before that conflict. An eccentric social reformer and erratic political tactician really pushed Illinois Republicans to back Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas for re-election in 1858. So he ultimately didn't even support Lincoln. But uh, Greeley was also quoted as saying that he wanted to start the attack on Virginia. And he did that through his newspapers before Lincoln ever raised an army. The, the, the army wasn't even uh, organized yet. And Greeley was already calling for war against the South, a very noted thing. And so uh, from there, um, we can go to the next slide. We can talk a little bit about seeing that that live stream. Uh, this is one of the websites where you can get the pay-per-view, pretty affordable, mixnstream.com. And uh, Richard Gage, uh, the, the noted 9-11 researcher, is also speaking this Thursday at that restaurant alongside me. And so mixnstream.com is one place that you can check out the live stream availability. And um, uh, from there, there's... Um, uh, we can go on from there. Yes, this is Richard Gage's own website. This is another place where you can get... Uh, and we've lost Mark. Yes, so unfortunately... Presentations, 9-11, Mass Media Cartel, Pandemic Treaty. So that, that alludes to my part of it, because I'll also be talking about the Pandemic Treaty a little bit, which, of course, I alluded to earlier, uh, talking about Peter McCullough, talking to Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Very important, of course, to keep an eye on that treaty in a very um, a very close way uh, as they reach for a uh, May 2024 deadline, they say, in Geneva to try and complete that, that treaty. So uh, that that's a couple of websites there, as I mentioned, where you can get live stream access to my talk and Richard Gage's talk this Thursday based here in Austin. There's ways for U.S. viewers who happen to live closer to buy a ticket to attend in person, then you get a dinner. Um, enough said about that. We'll, we'll move on to another interesting item here. This from the pages of American Free Press, a very recent edition. In fact, I think it's the most recent, uh, one of the most recent, uh, End War Powers. This is Matt Gates, a uh, Republican congressman from Florida, shown on the front page. Populist support for reigning in presidents grows in Congress, and one of the thing one of the things that mentions in this story, I won't get into it in too much depth, is that it's bringing together unlikely bedfellows. Um, pretty hard left Congress members are joining those on the so-called hard right and trying to rein in presidential powers. And a good example of what's happening would be in the next slide, and we can read a little bit about that. In mid-March, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee deliberated a bill that would repeal the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for the use of military force against Iraq. Senator Rand Paul, the Kentucky Republican, of course, the son of the noted Ron Paul, a former congressman, added that he plans to introduce a measure to end the 2001 authorization to use military force, or AUMF, which gave President George W. Bush broad powers to respond to any individual group or nation that officials claim were involved in the 9-11 attacks. Uh, quote, for years I've led the fight to return war-making powers back to Congress where they belong, said Rand Paul. Over 20 U.S. military actions are justified 
by claiming the 2001 AUMF uh, authorizes worldwide military force. My amendment, however, would make clear that the current Congress must authorize current war, not a Congress from two decades—excuse me, two decades ago. I beg your pardon. Um, this is a very important thing because when the U.S. lost its ability through the Congress, as spelled out in the Constitution, to actually declare war, and the last time we declared war was World War II, we lost it through the U.N. action called the Korean War, which ended some 70, 80 years ago as of this year, 1953. When all that happened, uh, something um, very fundamental changed in the U.S. system. And so this is long overdue. The authorization to use military force has literally become a blank check that belongs to the presidency, not any particular president. So everybody that sits down in the president's chair in the Oval Office automatically has this blank check that stems from Congress's several sessions ago, not the current Congress, as Rand Paul is arguing. And so there's an automatic uh, uh, succession from one president to the next, no matter who's in that chair, uh, uh, for them to automatically have this automatic war powers, uh, a blank check where they can just send the military hither and yon uh, practically at whim. So th this is fundamentally important and could lead to restoring something that, that, that the U.S. has not had since World War II, ultimately. Uh, uh, so there, there's a lot, a lot of gravity here, a lot, a lot of importance. Mark, I just uh, I just wanted to ask your thoughts on this, because uh, it seemed to me that there's a parallel to be drawn here between uh, the use of military force, the, this authorization for use of military force uh, and emergency use authorizations for vaccines in the sense that, you know, that the AUMF just allows the continuous use of war by a president in perpetuity, it seems, because of one event. Uh, and now we have uh, emergency use authorizations for vaccines, which seem to uh, uh, authorize the use of mRNA technology for just about everything in perpetuity uh, on the basis of one event, in this case, the, the pandemic. So uh, it, seems, it seems like they, they, they have, a, they have a, governments have a very limited set of, uh, of sort of mechanisms that they use, and they seem to just reuse them over and again, over time and again. Very adroit uh, observation, Mike. That's exactly right. Uh, when I look at people wearing masks, even now to this day, I walked in a doctor's office the other day and they went crazy that I wasn't wearing a mask. And I said, it's mask hysteria, a play on words. And I said it very loudly. But um, a lot of the people that are wearing masks, I think, think they're almost conscripted to fight a war against the virus. And they're being a good little soldier when they wear the mask. And so there's that parallel too. Psychologically, it's like the like the government is conscripting people to fight that war against this pathogen, just as they would conscript people to fight a foreign enemy. A pathogen becomes an enemy, an enemy is a pathogen, it's all the same. So psychologically and um, in the way you're describing, I think that's a very uh, insightful thing to point out. And I think there's a lot of accuracy to it. Okay, so let's uh, move on to Brittany Kaiser then. Well, nothing real special about her. Uh, she's one of many uh, presenters. Uh, this is from the Independent National Convention that I'm here in Austin to cover for UK Column. I did notice that it said Cambridge Analytica whistleblower. And I thought you guys might know more about Brittany than I do. She's one of countless speakers here at this uh, program. Uh, bearing with me just a moment, I got some paperwork over here. We, of course, again, have Tulsi Gabbard, the, the noted uh, former Democrat congresswoman from 
Hawaii that went independent. She's one of the keynotes, along with former Ohio Congressman Dennis Kucinich, who's the former mayor of Cleveland, and has done some things toward monetary reform that I think helped get him ushered out of uh, the House of Representatives. Uh, Chris Hedges, as mentioned last week, I think it was, noted journalist and author. He'll be speaking on empire and duopoly disentrenchment. And uh, this is just some imagery from from the event. Uh, the event. Uh, there's a lot of people that are not household names. There's Linton Johnson right there. Uh, I'm going to try and cover him quite a bit because he's going to speak about what kind of infrastructure will alternative media need to become more influential. And regardless of his viewpoint on the news, I'm interested in the infrastructure, the technology uh, to help further disseminate and uh, promote uh, an alternative media narrative to, to try and uh, uh, push back against this noxious monopolistic narrative that's causing so much harm from the BBC on your side of the pond to the New York Times and PBS on our side of the pond, on and on and on. So um, lots, to, lots to unpack here today, Monday, April 3rd, and the next two days after that here in Austin. And I'll have a lot more coming on the website, podcasts and articles, and another report next week, of course. So there you go. Thank you, Mark. Okay, Mark, thank you very much for that. Well, if the US and certainly the UK have got a free hand with wars, we shouldn't be surprised at what's happening in Ukraine at the moment. But uh, let's do a little update and we'll start with how the BBC saw things earlier this morning because this is their front page. But down in the bottom left is the uh, Ukraine article. Wagner raises flag in Bakhmut as Ukraine fights on. The stunt was dismissed by Ukraine, which said its army still holds the embattled eastern city. So the BBC is now really beginning to uh, struggle. It only ever just quotes what Ukraine says. That's never investigated or checked. But if we do an update, everything still comes back to the fight for this strategic city of Bakhmut. And uh, taking a selection of material from uh, reliable alternative sources. This one again emphasizes one that uh, Ukraine is left with less than 40% of the city at the moment. The rest of it is in Russian hands, but the Russian offensive continues, but it is at a, uh, a reasonably small area of the city at a time because each house, each block has to be fought for. So the light pink areas here showing these incremental advances by the Russians continue. And uh, the significance of the BBC front page is this, that the uh, Russians have now captured the administration centre, and that was the uh, building that the flag was placed on, because this is um, a key building within Bakhmut itself. But uh, the Russians have also taken Freedom Square, where there's been very heavy fighting, presumably because, of course, the Ukrainians don't want to uh, lose such a named uh, space in the city. But if you're looking at these small areas and thinking, well, this is not much progress, you've got to remember that each building has to be fought over. And if we come back to the, the way the Russians are conducting the warfare, they are moving very slowly. They're taking a few streets, a few key buildings at a time. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're moving forward. I've used the analogy before, like a lava flow, very slow, but it keeps moving. And we can see here in the different colours how these little sections are gained each day 
while the BBC is, is trying to say that the Russian offensive is stalled. But if we put in a little bit of uh, video clip, this is taken from the Ukrainian side. Um, this is in Bakhmut itself, but you can see the layout of the lower density areas of the cities. And each of these areas has to be fought for. So this is very hard street fighting, urban fighting, not seen on a scale since the Second World War. And uh, we'll just add a little bit more because on the outskirts of the area or in the country areas then we're into this kind of environment and there was snow over the last few days which has made the fighting particularly difficult for the Ukrainians who are in the open trenches. But of course the Russians now bringing in their air force so the size of the bombs dropped is increasing and battlefields strewn with um, burnt out armoured personnel carriers. Um, I could have put up a lot of clips now showing Western uh, equipment which has been sent to Ukraine is being systematically destroyed by the Russians. And perhaps this shows the true horror of things, which is the uh, Russians clearing tree lines where the Ukrainians hold uh, ground and hold country areas. But of course, the Russians now using their thermobaric weapons in order to completely destroy the Ukrainian positions. Some of the fighting is much too horrific to show on the news. But of course, this is the re reality of this brutal war in Ukraine with huge casualties on the Ukrainian side, despite what the BBC would have us believe. And uh, if we come and have a look at Avdivka further to the south, we've got exactly the same tactics by the Russians, which is encirclement, which is creeping forward. And as this particular organization, Live UA Map, is pointing out the mouth, if you like, of the encirclement is now down to about five kilometers. So very, very tight. And uh, this is another strategic area which is being closed down by the Russians. But if we uh, uh, think about what we're being told about a Ukrainian counterattack, this is comment by the Wagner forces themselves. They say that the Ukrainians have prepared about another 200,000 reserve troops, uh, 80,000 of them in the Bakhmut area, which we've mentioned before. And according to uh, Wagner, they are talking about 280 tanks, maybe a thousand armored vehicles, 300 pieces of artillery and uh, 93 rocket systems. So uh, it's clear that the uh, Russians at the moment are sitting tight and waiting for this Ukrainian attack because, of course, the Ukrainians will be launching an attack against prepared defensive positions. And contrary to the reality on the battlefield, UK Ministry of Defence, I think now has sunk to the bottom of the pile uh, because according to them, the Russians can barely fight because their troops are drunk. Uh, there's huge problems with crime, alcohol consumption within the Russian forces. And uh, this has led to problems, including poor weapon handling, road traffic accidents, and climatic injuries such as hypothermia. So we're led to believe that the Russians don't know how to protect their troops in cold weather. Uh, I've labelled this as childish propaganda by the UK Ministry of Defence, and that's what I think it is. But on the sidelines, of course, this conflict is beginning to run out of control. So we've got Politico here talking about NATO racing 
to arm its Russian borders. And uh, we've seen reports over the last week that the Russians are moving tactical nuclear weapons uh, into Belarus. And uh, of course, this is going to unsettle uh, NATO neighbours. So, Mike, I think this leads on quite nicely to the fact that it appears that uh, things in uh, some of the newcomers to uh, the European Union, NATO, are not that happy. Uh, well, let's move on to Finland. And, uh, well, yesterday was election day, and I know that the Finnish people support Ukraine and our fight for freedom, said uh, Anton uh, Garashenko uh, yesterday. Uh, thank you and grateful to the government of uh, Mar Marin Sana, uh, Sana Marin, that is, uh, uh, standing with Ukraine. Unfortunately for her, uh, it didn't work uh, because she has uh, lost her position as Prime Minister of Finland uh, and uh, be, to be replaced with uh, the con more conservative. Um, so she apparently trying to take Finland in a very left-wing direction. That hasn't gone down terribly well with the electorate. And, and although her party, as is typical, I suppose, with uh, proportional representation systems, her party has ended up with, with more seats but a, a smaller majority. Uh, and so uh, the uh, con more conservative side have uh, won this election. So that's Pateri Orpo has won the election, defeating Sanna Marin. Um, and uh, so the question then for us all is, uh, bearing in mind that uh, she was driving forward with the, the NATO policy, was part of this uh, a reaction to that? Uh, I don't know the answer to that yet. Uh, I was speaking to Alex uh, Thompson earlier on. Uh, and he uh, certainly feels that it had part something to play in the uh, so, part to play in the in the decision. But uh, we need to do a bit more to to find out what's what how much it did. Yeah, but it it appears that there's been a backlash over the getting closer to NATO and maybe uh, people in Finland getting frightened of where the country's now headed. Uh, well, in the meantime, then uh, let's have a look at uh, the latest from Mr. Zelensky himself. Um, because he's going nuts uh, over the fact that uh, Russia takes the presidency of the Security Council this month in the United Nations. Uh, unfortunately, he said, we have some obviously absurd and destructive news. Russia is chairing the UN Security Council. Uh, it's hard to imagine anything that proves more the total bankruptcy of such institutions. Okay, well, that's his position. Uh, his colleague, uh, Dimitro uh, Kaleba said reform is obviously necessary to prevent a terrorist state and any other state that wants to be a terrorist from destroying the peace. Now, of course, uh, the UK is largely driving forward with the agenda to reform the Security Council because uh, it wants to see Russia and China uh, effectively their veto removed. Uh, and why? Because Russia and China have prevented quite a lot of warfare by vetoing it over the years. One of the reasons I think uh, that uh, the UN has been sidestepped in some cases. Uh, but I wonder what the Russian response uh, was to all this. Let's have a look. Here's Dmitry Polyansky, who's the Russian Deputy Permanent uh, Representative of the United Nations, saying Russia will act as an honest broker during its presidency, unlike the proponents of the rules-based order. Uh, international law and procedure rules developed over decades are actually in effect in the UN instead of the rules-based order which the collective West seeks to replace interna international law with. Uh, unlike our former Western partners, uh, we play fair on the international arena and we do not promote double standards. Now, I think possibly the most interesting part of this, uh, Brian, was is the use of the word former because uh, every time I've heard the Russians talking about the West uh, in recent years has been our Western partners. 
uh, but to call them our former Western partners. It's a pretty strong point. Yes, I think yeah. it is. Um, so then let's move on to uh, Viktor Orban. Uh, and he had this to say on uh, Kossuth uh, Radio over the weekend. Uh, EU leaders are actively discussing the possibility of sending some kind of peacekeeping force to Ukraine, perhaps under the NATO banner. If this continues, the danger of a world war is not a literary exaggeration. That, that may be literal, it may be just a bad translation. But anyway, uh, that, I think, if there's any truth in that, is an extremely dangerous development. Well, we, we know, we've got to say, we know from the West's duplicity over the years that those peacekeepers, of course, will actually have a secondary role, or some of them will, and that will be to help prosecute the war. So the Russians are going to see this as an exceptionally dangerous move because it will enable the West to have their experts in on the ground to what? Fight the tanks or provide um, more detailed intelligence on the battlefield. So this is further engagement by NATO, but under the guise of calling it peacekeepers. Um, so let's see what the Russians had to say about uh, Orban's comments. He said, uh, this is Dmitry Peskov, who said, if uh, we're talking about some kind of serious negotiations, then this is a potentially uh, dangerous discussion. Um, in world practice, such forces as a rule, as peacekeeping forces, uh, are used only with the consent of both parties. In this case, it's potentially a very dangerous topic uh, and so on. And in the meantime, uh, the Russians have released their uh, concept for foreign policy of the Russian Federation and uh, Sergei Lavrov uh, introduced this. Uh, so this is what he had to say. The existential nature of threats to our country's security and development that are being created by unfriendly states has been recognized. Uh, the document designates the United States as the main originator and vehicle of the anti-Russian policy. Overall, the policy of the West uh, that is aimed at the all-out degrading of Russia is described as a new type of hybrid war. I'm going to suggest that uh, the Russians have got this wrong. Uh, the United States might be the uh, bully boys here, but I think the main vehicle of anti-Russian policy is the United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so they may want to look uh, elsewhere. David, have you any thoughts? Well, we're seeing a mention of the new type of hybrid war, but meanwhile, on the ground, we've got a very, very old type of non-hybrid war. And I think this is one of the differences between the view of the West and the view of the rest of the world. The West is uh, convinced that they can um, essentially operate soft power um, and it's been proven. It's been proven in this case not to be true, right? That ultimately, when when vital interests are at stake, and this is a vital in, in, interest for Russia, then it's old-fashioned hard power that comes into play. It's not a vital interest for the West. It's not a vital interest for Britain, for America, or for even Germany. And as such, we will not see. Um, the, the, the willingness or the public support or anything else to, to, to enable troops to be placed on the ground. I suspect the idea that, an, that a NATO peacekeeping force can be deployed is simply fanciful because it couldn't be deployed as a peacekeeping force because there would be war. And I don't think that would ever be supported in Western countries, uh, at least at the moment. Uh, yes, uh, I would just suggest that uh, 
you know, the, the idea of hybrid war, of course, Ukraine is only one front in a, in a bigger war that's been going on for a long time uh, in, on, across multiple domains, mainly, admittedly, in the information space up to now, David, but, uh, but much broader than just what's happening in Ukraine itself. Mm, that's for sure. But Ukraine's been the one where it's actually pushed into someone's, into another country's vital interest to such an extent that it had to go um, uh, as to a hot war. I suppose if you exclude Syria, because obviously the attack on Syria, um, terrorist led, looking to subdivide the country, obviously uh, challenged Syrian vital interests. So that also turned into a hot war. Um, so this is, this is the point that... Um, uh, the West is going to have to realise that there are lines and you have to respect them because if you don't, uh, unfortunate things start to happen. And then things start to develop their own uh, momentum um, and uh, the Western capitals may no, no longer be in control. Uh, indeed. OK, let's come back to the UK then, David, and Scotland. And, uh, well, your new leader, your great leader, the new great leader um, is, is Hamza, and I thought we'd just briefly cover his first week in office. It's been quite spectacular. So uh, we started off with him being sworn in. Now, it was a bit of an embarrassment because the pen didn't work, and you know, actually signing in proved to be a bit of a problem. But this is, this is how he came dressed. He came dressed in traditional, of traditional off, Scottish co costume, wasn't it, David? What? Well, a traditional Pakistani costume. This is the thing. He, he came dressed in garb which most Scots would recognise as foreign, as, 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 as different. Um, and it's obviously not what he normally wears. He normally wears a, a suit and tie. Um, so he, he put this on especially. I thought this was a politically bad move because he's coming in as First Minister of Scotland and immediately the first thing he does is he says, I'm not like you. I'm different from you. And David, I thought that was a, a, a very strange political decision. He's, com he's coming in and coming out at the same time. That's what I'd suggest. Okay, well, second thing he did, right? Second thing he did is he held a, a prayer meeting for the end of Ramadan in Butte House. And he got a publicity photograph of this, him leading his, 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 his brothers and his family in prayer. And he put this out into social media as well. Now, also, a couple of things about this. Firstly, he, he, if he wants to pray, that's one thing. But he made a publicity stunt out of this, which is a different thing. Again, he's just moved into Butte House. Is this not signifying that there's, there's a new Islamic order in town? Is this not going to annoy people? Is this not going to alienate people? I think it is. Again, a very questionable political decision. Um, and the other aspect of this, of course, the, a, a huge amount of the of the campaign was about religion. Not his religion, uh, but Kate Forbes' religion. If the first thing that Kate Forbes had done had got a pile of the wee freeze in to have a prayer meeting in Butte House, um, the liberal um, press in Scotland and and the, the the SNP and the Green Party and all the rest would have gone mental. So it's okay when Hamza does it. It's not okay when For when Kate Forbes does it. It's a strange dichotomy. But again, I thought that was a very poor political decision. Whatever you think of 
um, his, his Islamic beliefs and credentials, and we'll come to that in a moment, um, I thought that was, was a, a, a second poor decision. But an even worse decision was the decision, decision to get rid of Kate Forbes, because Kate Forbes was apparently willing to stay on as finance minister, in which role she's been very successful. And remember, she came into that role with no warning a day before a budget because the previous incumbent had had to resign because he was grooming a schoolboy online. And she came into that mess and there was, there was no drama. She'd actually conducted herself pretty well. She got the budgets through. There, there didn't seem to be any particular problem. She was about the only success story in the SNP cabinet. So, of course, the first thing Hamza did is he sacked her. Um, and then we've got here the Times reporting that they then came up with <laughs> an explanation as to why she'd gone. For Kate, it was all about work-life balance. Could Shona Robinson, the new Deputy First Minister. Um, and this, of course, wasn't true. Um, it was nothing to do with work-life balance. Uh, it was everything to do. She didn't want to spend more time with the kids. She wanted a proper job. Uh, so the Times continues, the real reason for dispensing with the most able member of the lackluster cabinet was because as finance secretary, Forbes would have picked deep holes in the, quote, well-being economy. Maybe discuss in extra time what that one means. This seemed to be useless big idea now that independence has been shelved. Well-being is shorthand for the Scottish Green Party's policy of degrowth. Uh, Green MSP Maggie Chapman famously said, uh, GDP increases with disaster and contracts with generosity. Oh, there we go. It means, quote, using politics to promote reduced consumption, as Green Party politics puts it. Now, this is the implication of this getting rid of Kate Forbes. Is she's now in the back benches. So she, the independent reports here that she's going, she's planning heavy thinking on policy while out of government. Um, quote, I think there's real merit in taking a period out of government to do some heavy thinking and some heavy lifting on policy. Now, let me translate that to you. Everything that Humza's going to do is imbecilic and uh, Kate Forbes is going to sit in the background and work out something sensible uh, so that she's ready uh, when he fails. Um, back to Islam. Uh, we've got here five pillars, uh, Muslim magazine, uh, subtitled What Muslims Are Thinking. Um, Hamza Yusuf has trashed Islamic teachings on his way to Scotland's top job. Maria Akbar says Hamza Yusuf's shameful denial of Islamic values is a lesson to us all. If we sell out Islam in a desperate attempt for validation and acceptance, it will only bring us disgrace. His proclamation of being a proud Muslim at the same time expressing views such as, quote, there's nothing wrong with LGBTQ or abortion, end quote, deeply bothers me. So you see, despite all of the strange Muslim and, and, and uh, Pakistani-centered visuals when he first came into power, the Islamic community's not fooled by it. I'm pretty sure they were supporting Kate Forbes. Um, and th there's also the traditional wing of the SNP, as um, exemplified by Fergus Ewing. A Ewing, after all. Um, and he's uh, written, Humza is enthralled to these wine bar revolutionaries who've never got their fingers dirty but want to lay waste to thousands of rural Scots jobs. In this, he's referring to the Green Party. And he says, in politics, you're judged by what you do or fail to do, but also by the alliances you make. We've allied ourselves to a small group of fringe extremists who want to dismantle our economy, put hundreds of thousands in the dole, 
and basically close down rural Scotland. I hope for the sake of the party I have served for half a century that we will soon extricate ourselves from this connection with the party which is not so much green but deepest red of the extreme left. And this is of course true. It's um, a watermelon party, green on the outside, red on the inside. Uh, and finally on this, what's Hamza doing? What's he, the first act? Well, the Christian Institute's reports, Hamza Yusuf, I will push through Scotland's vetoed sex swap bill. I think their phrase, not his. Um, uh, so, speaking following his victory, he stated he wants to challenge the UK government's order prohibiting the Gender Recognition Reform Scotland Bill from receiving royal assent. So, the, if, the, if it became law, the bill would allow 16-year-olds to change their legal sex by self-declaration without medical diagnosis. So, the very thing that brought down uh, Nicola Sturgeon, the very issue that brought down Nicola Sturgeon, the issue that's got almost no support in Scotland, Right? There's, there's, there's hardly anyone, it's only the extreme left who want to go and pick a fight with Westminster over this. Um, it's got hardly any, any public support, but Hamza's going straight to it. So this is another disaster. So it's been a week of disasters in uh, Hamza Yusuf's first week in power. So D David, do you, do you think this is sort of accidental that he's bumbled into an area that caused uh, Nippy such problems? Or have we got somebody behind the scenes setting the policy and saying no 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 you're going to you will be the new man to drive it through i can't believe that you would have somebody so naive on there um you know as an individual that they're going to stumble into an area that he knows a minefield he's got a job to do he must take it forward well well, this is it. I mean, it's it's an ideology, it's a belief, it's a religion uh, that he's pushing forward, the woke ideology. Um, this has been a huge part of what the SNP has become, like Sinn Féin in Ireland, similar policies. They have wholly sold themselves over to this. It, certainly at the highest level, the majority of the party has. Not Fergus Union, not Kate Forbes, but the majority of the party in senior positions have. And this has been, they have assembled a strange alliance of um, of, of, of far-left forces of, of uh, we'll discuss in maybe an extra time of, of exactly what sort of forces um, that have coalesced around this agenda. And it's the agenda that holds them together. So he's bought into this for years. I don't think he understands necessarily what it does or where it comes from. He certainly doesn't seem to see the conflict between it and Islam, even though many of his co-religionists do. Um, I think it's Hamza is blundering into this and following the previous agenda, it, which is not a Scottish agenda. It all comes from elsewhere, much of it from the United States. Um, and before that, from, uh, from various European strands of thought, Frankfurt School and all the rest of it. Uh, so it's not Scottish. It's not British. Um, it's very much an import, but it's everywhere in the West. They've sold themselves to it, and I don't think they can find a way to extricate themselves from the strange and perverse logic of this um, philosophy. Assuming that they would want to. Yeah. Um, you know. Assuming they want to, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, we are going to end there. 
<coughs> Excuse me, I think that's a pretty powerful note to end on. Big changes in Scotland at least, and we'll see where that heads. Uh, we'll invite people to, in a few minutes' time, to join us in extra time. Um, we've got some uh, good subjects. We'll be covering uh, the United States and politics, and we'll also be having a look at the F-35. Um, so join us then. We'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.